Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 129 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Hello, everyone. Did everyone have a very joyous National Read a Book Day? Oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. was told about National Read a Book Day two days after it happened, so no. I don't think <laughs> I read a book on National Read a Book Day. Which day was it? I don't know, but I was probably listening to a Bachelor Recap podcast. Do you have to read a whole book in a day? I think that's the rule, and I think we all failed. Otherwise, St. Book comes down. It doesn't give you any new books next year. I want to meet St. Book. Guys, big news. Maggie started going to preschool. That is big news. I hate to say it, Bailey. Sometimes you say big news and it's not big news. What? That's big news. Rude. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you're like, big news. I saw a bookmark on the street that <laughs> someone else had and I've, I'll never see it again. Toby's the one that texts us whenever he finds a book on the street. I mean, that's big news. I want to come back to the book you found on the street later, Toby. But yes, Mm -hmm. Maggie started preschool. It was very cute. I was really, really worried, but she was like, fine. And when we left her, she was smiling. And when we picked her up, she was smiling. But like, she doesn't talk yet. So I can't, I don't know (laughs) what happened that day. Like what she did. Did she have fun? She keeps pointing to her feet and to like a picture of a soccer ball. So I think she played soccer. I don't know. Wow. You mean football? (laughs) I guess so. And yeah, the the lady, when she brought her out to us, the like principal was like, she's going to be ready for a nap. And I was like, that's it. That's all I get. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's my biggest update. Go Maggie. I will say I felt pretty smug that, remember Dylan, all the mm-hmm. boys were crying. Oh, yeah. They were like sobbing mm-hmm. in a line and Maggie was just like playing with the dollhouse. But we did, <laughs> we did kind of like sneak out because we didn't want to do like a big goodbye. We thought it would make it worse. And so who yeah. knows what happened when she turned around and we weren't there. <laughs> We ghosted our no, child. That's a good call. <laughs> we did kind of. You Irish goodbye to your child. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's my big news. Toby, I want to hear your big news about the, what was it, Clooney the Scourge book you found? How dare you? <laughs> you read the book in which Clooney the Scourge dies. You know he's not in the series anymore. I really remember the plot really well. <laughs> you have to solve a riddle. <laughs> yeah, a really, a really, really simple riddle. So, yes, big news. Uh, Pages who follow the Instagram might already know, uh, but I found maybe the bit like the best street book find of my life. Um, and it happened all on the loading dock of a CVS. <laughs> Where all magical rendezvous happen. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, By the bus stop. I was walking through town and I saw that someone, for some reason, had kind of laid out probably like eight to ten paperbacks in a row on this loading dock. It was more like a handicap accessible ramp, to be honest. And I looked through them, of course. And at the very end, there was Salamandastron by Brian Jakes, the author of the Redwall series. And you know I scooped it up. I was very excited. As Bailey has mentioned, I texted the whole group. They gave me a pretty tepid response. So I was angry. (laughs) about that. Um, But yeah, no, I took it and I I read it over the long weekend and had a fantastic time. It was like, you know, one of my favorite street book finds ever. Toby, what are you going to do with it now that you've finished? Like drop it in another CVS? Um, I hadn't thought of that. I don't know. I'm going to hang on to it for now. We'll see. We'll see where the uh, instinct takes me. I will not be leaving it. As much as I love finding pavement books, I don't think I'd ever have the heart to leave a book on the pavement because I'm not so naive to think that every pavement book (laughs) is taken joyfully up and given a new home. I had never thought thought of like giving away books on the street kind of like giving away a puppy you don't want on the street and now i'm oh. feeling guilty for giving away books oh what? no no Book, wait, books wait, are but sent- Bailey, you do have to realize that books despite what might happen when we leave the room are not known to be alive <laughs> well they do not require food access to the outdoors or water okay but like books can die like toby said it could rain on the book and i was then responsible for this sentient beings drowning yeah but you live in california so (laughs) yeah you put them in little free libraries they have hats okay all right okay orphanages for books um (laughs) i have a little shame but it's not a big deal all right cool tell us about it we'll be the judge (laughs) yeah we'll decide what's cool All right. Well, I did buy the latest in the Court of Thorn and Roses series because it came out in paperback, the Court of Silver Flames. But that's not a big deal because like that's to be expected. Um, When we were in Telluride for the Telluride Film Festival, which was very fun, we saw the film Women Talking by Sarah Pauly, which is excellent. I think it's going to win Best Picture. Anybody who doesn't agree is not an ally to women. Um, Anyway. Whoa. uh, (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And I liked it so much that I went to the local bookstore and bought a copy of the book, but I've already read it. So, you know, 
Is it shame? I don't know. I mean, if it is, you hate women. <laughs> well, it's shame for you, Bailey, if what you did to the first copy you had uh, was put it out into a river or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess we're going to have to set up a tribunal to decide your fate. This is a reference to women talking. I'll do a little shout out for women talking. I mean, you guys are all going to be excited about the movie when it's coming out soon, but you should also read the book. The movie is pretty much the book with a few little changes in the end, but it's based on a true story, which is also wild. The true story is there was a group of Mennonite women. The true story is that women talk to each other? Yeah. Isn't that nuts mm. when men aren't there? I don't know about that. <laughs> so... A group of Mennonite women living in a colony in Bolivia. Um, I would say what the book's about, because then you have to say it's like, but the book's about this. Dylan's mansplaining how I should do this yeah. review. Yeah, I was going to say, this isn't men talking, Dylan. <laughs> okay, so uh, the book follows a group of Mennonite women. Um, they are meeting on the loft of a barn because the men in their community have horribly um, drugged and raped them in the night, pretty much uh, hundreds of women in their colony. And at first the men claimed it was the devil and they were hysterical and it's work of female imagination. But then they caught a man and then the police takes him into custody. The rest of the men pull together um, and try to get money for bail. And while the men are out, the women gather and decide what to do. Should we do nothing? Should we stay and fight or should we leave? Um, This really happened in a community in Bolivia. Mennonite community, um, and that makes it all the more horrifying. Um, but it's a really great character study and a really great, I don't know, treatise on patriarchy. And it's got like every actress. The movie has a lot of really famous actors like um, uh, Jesse Buckley, Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Frances Ooh. McDormand. It's very good. Two thumbs up. Sounds amazing. Yeah. So I don't know if that's shame, but that's something I wanted to report. And I want to say, go pick up that book and read it. It's only 200 pages. Very fast. I've been working on my Goodreads goal. I've, I've been toiling away and I still have eight books to go to catch up. But it's better than if I were even more behind. <laughs> oh, and one other thing I wanted to say about Telluride is that I had a dilemma, which is they had an adaptation of the book The Wonder by Emma Donahue, which is on both Andrew and my to read lists, starring the Pew, Florence Pew. And I wanted to see it, but I hadn't read the book yet. So I was like, I hope, I guess I don't see it. Um, But just so everyone knows, that's coming down the pipeline. Um, Andrew, do you like Florence Pugh and do you have any shame? Of course I like Florence Pugh. I am a human being, um, (laughs) despite the rumors to the contrary. Mm. Um, And yes, I do for once. I've been very shameless for a while. I've been living my William H. Macy, Emmy Rossum, Guy from the Bear life. Mm -hmm. But it's all caught up to me. It's all coming back to me now. Shout out Meatloaf and Celine Dion. Um, I have four books of shame. However, I want <gasps> to, you know how Bailey like talks about her extra credit and all that nonsense to try to mitigate her shame? I'm owning that I have four books of shame. I would also like to say huh. that I have read about six books in the last three weeks to try to catch Ooh. up on my Goodreads goal. So mitigate where I can mitigate. I still think I'm net positive in my reading removal of books from shelves. So you did read a book for National Book Day? Probably. You had an official National Read a Book Day cake, as is tradition. Sick. It's made out of books. It's not very tasty. Oh, well, I've eaten books in my life. Um, <laughs> no questions, please. Um, <laughs> in case people are wondering what books I read that were off pod, I caught up on Survive the Night by Riley Sager that Bailey read a while ago. Also read Blood, Sweat, and Chrome. Ooh, yeah. uh, Euphoria by Lily King. Ooh, yeah. Furious Hours by Casey Sepp. Yeah. Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe. Yeah. And Interior yeah. Chinatown by Charles Yu. Boom. I was almost six for six with you there, Andrew. I haven't read Interior Chinatown. Well, it's a very quick read. So if you're trying to catch up on your goal, I recommend it. It's also pretty good. How's your goal doing? Did you make a dent? I am five books behind now. I was 11 and I read those and then also the book for this podcast. But then in the time it took me to do that, I added like the the clock ticked over and then added another book. So I'm at five. Hmm. That's a lot better than I was. was, So I'll take it. Good job, Andrew. Yeah. Back to what the page Joe's come for, which is to shame me. Um, <laughs> I, I picked up four cop, four books. Uh, two were from a gift certificate I had to the wonderful Rough Draft bookstore in Kingston. And another one, I went back to Rough Draft and got another one outside of a gift certificate. So that's how wonderful it is. So the books I picked up, we'll run through them quickly. I think almost all of them we you'll be familiar with or we've already talked about. I picked up a copy of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow nice. by Gabrielle Zevin, which has been read by Toby and Bailey has at least purchased. Mm-hmm. And then the next two I picked up also from Rough Draft uh, feature some to read list uh, all stars or at least previous appearers. Um, 
the new book by Mohsen Hamid, The Last White Man, who wrote Exit West, which we did on the podcast, mm. as well as Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel, whose Station Eleven we covered. And then I picked up from a comic book shop, actually, in Kingston um, called World's End Comics, a graphic novel called Petrograd by Philip Gallat and Tyler Crook, which I don't know a lot about, except it appears to be about the assassination attempts of Rasputin. Um, but I picked it up because that was the name of my thesis, my creative writing thesis in college, and I want to know what they bit from me. Just kidding. It wasn't about <laughs> Rasputin at all, but still. Dylan, I think you've read that one, right? No, I want to, though. I, I can't find a copy of it. All right, well, come on over to World's exactly. End Comics. That's why I was like, excited when he said that. <laughs> so that's my big shame. It'll hopefully be another like six episodes before I have more, but that's where I'm at now. I am proud of you, Andrew, and I really think that you are the one of us that might accomplish your goal. Toby is like 500 books behind as well, so... Hey. <laughs> Guys, I'm going to finish hey. my three-book goal for the year. <laughs> I would appreciate it if we just kind of forgot that I had a Goodreads goal for the year. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, don't talk about that. Yeah. We don't talk about Goodreads goals. Well, you know what we can talk about? What? Andrew, what's your favorite thing? <laughs> Solid transition. My favorite thing is reading books for this podcast. And this week, I read My Favorite Aww. Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris. Yeah. Rah, rah, rah. Ooh. This is one of my favorite graphic novels. I've been waiting for the second part and waiting and waiting and waiting. Will it ever come? Yeah. I don't know. I've been trying to research when the next book's coming out. It might be coming out in the next two weeks or it might not be coming out this year at all. We're we're jumping ahead, but just so everybody knows, basically, I also looked it up and the author said it's coming out like next week, but nobody else does. No publishers, Amazon, bookshop, nobody. So I don't know about that. You know why? It's because everyone else knows our books are stuck in the Panama Canal. No spoilers for facts. Anyway, Andrew, we're distracting you. Tell us about the monsters. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did read a book. <laughs> <laughs> no, so um, this is a large graphic novel, Pedro, so it's a little hard to bring in sort of a traditional review in terms of quotes and whatnot, but I'm going to do my best. So, Emil Ferris's gigantic debut graphic novel is dark, twisted, loving, wrecking, and beautifully illustrated. It follows Karen Reyes, an elementary school student obsessed with monsters to the point of seeing herself as one. When a mysterious death happens in the unit above her basement apartment in Chicago that's written off as a suicide, Karen becomes a detective trying to solve a mystery in a world rich in complication, cruelty, and vivid characters. What results is a twisty odyssey through myth, fear, pain, friendship, and family, begging the question of what makes a monster and what they are in our world. Andrew, you should have written nice. the back of that book. That was great. Alison Bechdel wrote the back of the book. <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, that's a, a, a sort of broad swath of it. To give you a little more detail, there is a, you know, the mysterious death happens above Karen and her family's apartment where she lives with her mother and her older brother, who's adult, whose, whose name is Dees. Um, his name's actually Diego, but they call him Dees. And no one is super convinced that it was a suicide. And so Karen, in her elementary school way, puts on a um, big old trench coat and a hat and becomes a detective. I should also mention that Karen is illustrated as like a mini wolf person, like a werewolf, because that's how she sees mm -hmm. herself and is obsessed with horror movies, monsters, uh, horror comics, and sort of the framing device of each chapter is a new pulpy horror comic cover. Like they're called like Tales from the Abyss or like Spectre, things like that. Dread. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we follow Karen uh, through this journey. A lot of what she delves into is very adult, very serious, very dark. And a lot of it is also supplemented with an illustrated uh, story that's of a cassette tape of the, mur of the murder or suicide victim um, telling her life story. She, her name's Anka and she's from Germany. Uh, she was a German Jew during the Holocaust. So we get you, that story as well. And you get um, Karen trying to solve that as well as dealing with all the other complications of her life, of which there are many. Oh, yeah. Has everybody read this? I know Bailey and Dylan have. Toby, you've read it as well. So this is like a four for four. I have, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I read it on strong recommendation from Bailey and Dylan. And I feel like, Andrew, you also probably would have read this faster, but then you added it to the list and kind of waited for it to be chosen. Absolutely. I bought this after we had started recording the podcast, but kept it as a not read because I knew it would be fun to talk about. <laughs> um, and fun to talk about is an interesting way of putting this book. Um, yeah. Because it's kind of hard. So yeah, let's go into Orcs and Elves or, well, Orcs and Elves are sufficiently monstrous, I guess. Um, we could say Dracula's and Van Helsing's. But then who's the real hero then? Because isn't Van Helsing Dracula's monster? 
All right, so we're going to go with uh, orcs and elves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, my elves, it's absolutely gorgeously illustrated. At its purest, the art is very beautiful because Ferris has such a mastery of her craft that she can create these gorgeous pencil drawings that just are completely evocative. And you should know going in, or you would know immediately going in, that a sort of conceit of it is that it's Karen's notebook. So the pages are all lined. It looks like you've gotten her school notebook that she's been drawing in instead of paying attention in class. But of course, because it's Emil Ferris doing the drawings, the level of the art is so insanely gorgeous that it uh, it's a very cool sort of just physical object. I think it kind of looks like she took like a Bic pen and was just like scribbling and that's how she was shading. Yeah, like you said, like doodling during class or something. It's just so creative and gorgeous. Yeah. A little bit of research. I can confirm that a lot of it, not quite Bic level ballpoint pen, but a lot of the illustrations are straight up ballpoint pen. And uh, an interviewer I read asked her if she regretted choosing that as a medium. And she said, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Just because I think it was a huge pain in the butt to to complete an, you know, 400 page graphic novel with ballpoint pens. Yeah. And but I mean, but it's those level of details that make it really cool um, because it's all it's hard to describe this, but it's all like cross hatching and um, all kinds of cool Mm -hmm. ways that look like you can sort of see how Emile Ferris was like thinking about how she probably drew when she was younger and then like bring in the techniques and like choosing when to like show her skill it's a very cool just like living document in that way definitely going into that a little bit like she can also shift her style um with sort of alarming emotional potency like when things get frantic sometimes she'll lose detail she'll simplify the drawing style to something that it could be done really quickly and it fits the story which is really cool i sort of mentioned earlier that our main character karen is constantly appears as a monster but something that's very cool and very clear from the beginning is that the normal characters and i say normal with air quotes like appear so much more monstrous than she does she kind of looks like a kind of cute little werewolf and like the face detail of these people it's kind of robert crumb like Mm -hmm. regular human faces become these terrifying like putty masks keeping with art style for a little bit and moving on to a different elf uh color is used sparingly but beautifully i feel like if you didn't actually read or engage with any of the pages and you just sort of flip through it kind of like a flip book if you just sort of tracked the color blue throughout it, you would get a sense of the story. And I feel like that's really cool because Ferris is just like sort of very intentional about when she puts in color and where she puts it on the page and how big it is on the page that you can really track things. And the majority of the of the book is in black and white. So she, you know, keeps tools holstered for the optimum moment of impact. Yeah, well said. And then a sort of final elf to talk about is that Karen's perspective is really cool in what makes the story so successful because she's navigating this like horrifying and like magical world for us and like picks what we need to know about. Uh, you see a lot of things from her perspective and Things happen that defy logic, but because she's sort of game to go through them, it most of the time stays pretty understandable. And she's immediately a character that you root for and love. Anyone who's like, I I feel like most people listening to this podcast can probably, you know, relate to feeling like you don't quite belong in the world. And she immediately from like having her werewolf head and little canine teeth, you're immediately like, oh, I'm on your side. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What are you talking about? We have the coolest listeners around. Even cool people sometimes (laughs) don't feel like they belong, Dylan. And I think that most of our listeners are cool people. (laughs) Uh, Pejos, you can sort out amongst yourselves which of you are cool and which of you are lame. (laughs) I won't won't make that call for you. (laughs) Um, And yeah, there are more elves that I have. There are more positive to say about this book, but I encourage you if this sounds interesting to you for you to pick up a copy and, and read it. Um, but I do have some orcs and I, and I am curious if you guys are going to throw me out of the podcast because I have orcs about this book, but we will see. Devastating silence. <laughs> uh, gosh, this is my last time on here. I got to make a count. Um, I think it might not have been the right time for me to read this book. Uh oh. Uh-oh. Like it, it, it's so dark. It's such a dark book. Yeah. Every bad thing you can think of that happens to human beings, even if they're in monster form, happens to people in this book. It was kind of bleak in certain moments, and I felt really emotionally affected by it, which is a good thing. But then after feeling emotionally affected by it, I sort of just kind of felt empty, which I don't think is a good thing. Mm. <laughs> because it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of kindness to 
balance off that. And there's, that's not an obligation if you write something dark to have kindness in it. I don't know if anybody's read like, um, what is it? The Painted Bird by Jerzy Kaczynski. It was sort of akin to that, which is this sort of just saga of pain. And um, you can mm. recognize that as being beautifully and beautifully written, but it's uh, it doesn't necessarily fill you with um, gratitude for having read it necessarily. And maybe that comes in part two. Maybe part two is a laugh riot, but we only have part one. Yeah, no, absolutely. Part two is like a different kind of graphic novel. It's like more Beetle Bailey. It's going to be a little bit wacky. <laughs> She's going to join the U.S. Army. It's going to be crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Can, do you guys enjoy that the only comic I could pull out of my head on short notice was Beetle Bailey? Yeah, what a what a what a pull! Not Garfield, not Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> nope, nope. None of them. None of the ones that would have made a lick more sense. <laughs> I haven't thought of Beetle Bailey in decades. Good job, good job, Toby. <laughs> no, I wonder what Sarge is getting up to these days. He always got into such pickles. Uh, probably eating a sandwich. Oh, no, I think that's Beetle. Anyway, continue. <laughs> and, and again, that's not, it's, it's hard to call that a true negative, but like, I don't know, be in the right emotional state to read this. To move on to a different orc, um, it's not a realistic book, obviously, and it, and it jumps logic to a certain degree, but some of the logic jumps were just too much for me to follow. The book demands that you abandon a certain sense of logic, but there is also still a through line you're following. And then certain times, I just didn't know what was real to a point where I don't know if it was intentional or it just wasn't enough information. That mm-hmm. said, yeah. and this can follow to both of the points and Bailey has sort of already hinted at it, all of these could go away based on what comes out in the second volume. <laughs> the second volume could yeah. completely change my perspective on these two orcs. And the fact of the matter is, the elves there are so elfish um, that it's. I still <laughs> would recommend anybody read this. However, I could love it even more if uh, some of those things are reconciled, especially if it comes out in the second part. All of that said, I'm only giving it four stars. I feel like if I'd read it in a different mindset, it could have been five. I'm going to go with four, though, because that was my honest assessment of it. But... I eagerly await the second part and I can't wait for it to come out and I will yeah. buy it as soon as I see a copy in a store. So it's a, it's four stars, but it's a pretty kind four stars, I think. Andrew, that's totally fair. I don't think I've read this one since like 2016, so I don't entirely remember. You also it. gave it four stars to blow up your spot. Ooh. I did. Interesting, because like my thought of it is this could be like the best graphic novel ever, but I just need to know the ending. Yeah, Andrew, I'll chime in and say I'm not ready to kick you off the podcast quite yet because I agree wholeheartedly with both your points, maybe even more than it sounds like Bailey does. I remember giving this four stars and thinking that it might even have been less than four stars I for me. I hate to do this to you, Toby, but you gave it five stars on Goodreads. <laughs> oh, no. And so did Dylan. <laughs> I looked this up. That's why I was worried about bringing oh, in any negatives God. to the podcast. My spot is so blown up. <laughs> well, you know what? In, in thinking back on it, I, I think I would lower it at least to four stars. Yeah, and especially when you're talking about the leaps in logic. I think sometimes I want to tell myself I'm smarter than I am. And I think when I was reading it, I was really frustrated. And I was like, yeah, I get this. I get this. But I remember being so frustrated with some of the very difficult to follow parts of the latter part of the book. Plus, for how cool I think it is, I don't think I've actually recommended it to anyone besides like people who are super close to me because it's so intense that I can't be like, yeah, read this book that will make you feel pretty gross. (laughs) Well, I have recommended this to pretty much everybody here. um, And then it has ruined Andrew's life. So I gave it four stars. It didn't ruin my life. (laughs) It just wasn't a five star book for me today. (laughs) All right. Well, Toby, do you have any five star facts for us? Well, you'll have to tell me how many stars these facts get, but yes. <laughs> so, Emil Ferris, um, I'm going to do some facts from our good old friend Wikipedia. Love that guy. And I'm going to intersperse them with my other favorite thing, which is Terry Gross. Uh, that is Fresh Air interviewed Emil Ferris, and I'm going to be pulling excerpts from that interview. So, Emil Ferris was born in 1962, and she was born in Chicago. This was her debut in publishing in 2017. My favorite thing is Monsters. And uh, immediately upon it coming out, it was praised as a masterpiece and one of the best comics by a new author. She was born to Eleanor Spice Ferris and Mike Ferris on Chicago's South Side and grew up on the North Side's Uptown. Her parents are artists and they met at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. So art runs in the family. Um, She can trace her Hispanic lineage from indigenous Mexico to Spain, and she's also of Lebanese, German, French, Irish, emigres, and Sephardic Jewish descent. So she's got a lot of history. 
Cool. Um, earlier in her life, uh, she worked as a freelance illustrator, and she also had a short stint working as a toy designer for clients such as McDonald's and Takara Tomy. What a specific job. Yeah, like a kid's dream job. <laughs> I'm going to design the McDonald's Happy Meal toys. <laughs> I don't think the my favorite thing is Monster Happy Meal toys are coming out soon. But what if they were? Yeah. Well, on that note, Emil Ferris has a a very intense past and I it's so intense that I will actually give you a bit of a trigger warning um, if you are not in the mood to hear about abuse of children if you're not in the mood to hear about uh, death and serious illness I would maybe skip the next couple minutes of the podcast because her life has been pretty hard um, she was sexually abused as a child and she says it negatively affected her ability to draw um, for many, many years. And here's a quote she has from her Terry Gross interview. Sexual violence was something that was very prevalent in the area that I grew up in. And it was something that we dealt with, especially as girls, but also boys were exposed to it by virtue of being in organizations and institutions that allowed children to be abused. It was very much a part of our lives. And as children, we would talk about, quote, leave the room when this person asks you to sit on their lap, end quote. Those are the kind of cues you'd give other children and there was not any really protection. So that kind of darkness has been in her life since she was very young and she does cite it as kind of an influence on her work. Mm. Another influence specifically on this work is in 2001, when she was 40 years old, she caught West Nile fever from a mosquito bite. Three weeks after she went to the hospital to get it treated, she ended up paralyzed from the waist down and lost the movement in her right hand. As she eventually regained the motor functionality and returned to working and drawing, she ended up getting an MFA in creative writing from the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. She's right-handed, right, Toby? That's correct, yeah. yeah. Um, and she has regained mobility. She still walks with a cane, but she obviously has regained a lot of dexterity in her right hand. Um, while she was recovering from the paralysis, she actually worked on her graphic novel, on this graphic novel. And here's a quote about that process. For me, the moments of beauty were when I duct taped a quill pen to my hand and I'm shaking, knocking bottles of ink, and my daughter steadies my hand and helps me put the quill down. Then she's with me. She's standing beside the drafting table and I'm drawing and I draw a wheelchair and I think she's going to draw me sitting in the wheelchair, but she draws me standing up out of it. And she says, Mama, I know they told you you're not going to walk again, but I really believe you will. It's in those moments when everything seems so dark that the most beautiful things happen. So maybe part two of my favorite thing of monsters is going to get a little bit more bright. Who knows? <laughs> um, so this is her speaking about having West Nile virus. Uh, she says, one of the hallmarks of West Nile virus is that because you get encephalitis and meningitis, there are so many delusions, illusions and hallucinations that are a part of this fever and chills that build up to your final destination, which is ultimately in the mind of the virus, death but for me was paralysis, and of course, a rich panoply of remembered delusions and hallucinations. She says, the angel of death came to visit me, and the angel of death as I saw it in my fever was a very big 1940s kind of a gray teal blue filing cabinet, and it was sort of a bureaucrat, and it just came into the room and spoke. One of the drawers slightly opened and there was this sort of glowing light inside of it, and it said, are you in or are you out? We need to know for our records. And I thought of my daughter and I said, yeah, I'm in. I got to stay. I got to finish this because she was only six at the time. What an interesting image. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I might have mentioned this earlier, but my favorite thing is Monsters was due to be released in 2016. But the Chinese company that was shipping the books went bankrupt and the entire run, every single one of the books was trapped in the Panama Canal. Uh, it was eventually released in 2017 by Fantagraphics and immediately received praise from authors like Art Spiegelman, Alison Bechdel and Chris Ware. And it was regarded as one of the best comics of 2017. Uh, so she's speaking here about uh, catching the disease. Uh, West Nile virus. Looking back, she says the book never would have been written had she not contracted West Nile. Quote, the experience really coalesced my ferocity around regaining the ability to draw and walk and live and create. It became clear to me that it was much more important to do the best that I could and to give something to the world. So this is, uh, that is their, you know, the source of this book. Uh, and also it's interesting that in April 2022, Ferris uh, was among the more than three dozen comic creators who contributed to Operation USA's benefit anthology book, Comics for Ukraine, Sunflower seeds. Uh, so if you would like to see some new work by Emil Ferris, that's where you can see it. All right. Yeah. And that is Emil Ferris. And hopefully we'll be doing more facts on her uh, when part two comes out and we read it. I would say that's a solid three star fact. Just kidding. Five stars. What? <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know what? No facts for Maggie O'Farrell. I hope you I hope you know everything you want to know about her. Oh, no, just kidding. Oh, and you know what? what? I will. I will say right now, I'll tease it. Uh, these two authors share a shocking connection. 
Bum, bum, bum. Good facts, Toby, and good review, Andrew. That is My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris. Four stars. Woo. Well, in this uh, wonderful adventure on the sea of reading, did you pull up anything in your net this week, Bailey? What about a big old ham? Did you, <laughs> did you go fishing for some ham? It took me a second. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yes, I did read a book this week and it was called Ham Net. Oh, what a coincidence. That's what Andrew and I were talking about. I read Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Um, this came out a few years ago. The subtitle is A Novel of the Plague. So, you know, Fun. important for the time. If you don't know, now you know. <laughs> it's very easy to summarize what this book is and to introduce it because it's on page one, historical note. And so I'm going to tell you this, and this is the entire plot of the book. Are you ready? Born ready. In the 1580s, a couple living on Henley Street, Stratford, had three children, Susanna, then Hamnet and Judith, who were twins. The boy, Hamnet, died in 1596, aged 11. Four or so years later, the father wrote a play called Hamlet. That is the plot of the book. (laughs) So obviously it's about William Shakespeare. It's about his um, marriage to people think of her as Anne Hathaway in the book. She's called Agnes. It's about how they met, how they had kids, how he, you know, became a playwright and their son Hamnet died of the plague. Did he write any other plays that I might have heard of? Yeah. Um, Just some obscure like history plays. Um... One about like a Scottish person. Did he do Susical? Yes, he did do Susical. Um, <laughs> I love Susical. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and then it, it it goes through the first production of Hamlet um, at the Globe Theater, and that's the end of the book. So the introduction tells you exactly what's going to happen, but the magic of this book is it still draws you in despite the fact that you know everything going in. So you're saying that the show must go on. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are married to each other. <laughs> Um, okay, so one interesting thing is that, you know, I've I've given proper nouns, but the character in the book is not named William Shakespeare. He's called like the Glover's son or the playwright or Agnes's a husband or... Billy Shakes? No. <laughs> Bailey, I, I, I wouldn't cut in except that I have an actual uh, thing relating to that in the research, which is pretty funny. Tell us, tell us. So this is, uh, like many of my facts, this is pulled from a lovely article on The Guardian. So one of the stumbling blocks to writing the novel was the feeling that Maggie had about a presumption of characterizing a genius. The interviewer says, I noticed she never used Shakespeare's name in the book. And Maggie says, I couldn't. When you're sitting at your computer, immersed in the world you created, and have to write, William Shakespeare had his breakfast. It's impossible not to think, I'm an idiot. Even calling him William seems colossally presumptuous. (laughs) So that's why she doesn't call him William. Billy Shakes went to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) See, I I like that a lot. And I think this isn't William Shakespeare's story, although it's about everybody in his life. And it's probably the draw that you have to the book in the first place. It's more about his wife, his children, his family. And Gwyneth Paltrow. And Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) And the, you know, his legacy and the legacy of his son. So you sympathize with every character. Agnes in particular is so interesting. Um, She was eight years older than William Shakespeare. um, And she was considered like an old maid and an eccentric. In this book, I don't know if this is true, but Maggie O'Farrell characterizes her as one of those healers that like finds herbs in the woods and like people might think she's a witch, that sort of thing. Um, But she also has a kestrel that she has on her arm that like follows her around. And that's like the scene where William Shakespeare, I'm sorry, where the Latin tutor sees her with the kestrel. (laughs) Like that's kind of his like, oh, I like this girl. And I liked that he was into not the traditional flower. Why did they call her Agnes instead of Anne? Um, There is a historical note at the end where the author says that Agnes's father in the will addressed her as Agnes. Um, And that was actually really helpful at the end. It's just like a paragraph of like, this is everything I made up. And it's like really insignificant. It's like there was already a Joan. So I had to have a different name here, even though this other lady was also named Joan. Um, So it just feels like you're in the hands of somebody that did a lot of research and cares about showing what is true, but also doing some fun speculation as well. Nice. Maggie O'Farrell has beautiful descriptions. Just in general, the way she presents ideas is beautifully written. Like, for example, um, in talking about Agnes moving in with the Latin tutor, 
Shakespeare's family. Shakespeare's father is abusive and everybody in the family kind of like tenses when he comes near. And so in moving into the house, Agnes is trying to figure out how everything works. And this is what this is how Maggie O'Farrell describes it on page 120. In the early weeks of her marriage, Agnes collects impressions as a wool gatherer hoards wool, a tuft from here, a scrap from there, a few strands from a fence, a bit from a branch until, until, until you have a whole armful enough to spin into yarn. Just a creative way to present this idea of gathering information. Yeah. Maggie O'Farrell also has excellent descriptions of like really visceral or upsetting things like death, sex, childbirth. You just get the sense of like, yeah, she's probably had a kid because that's exactly what it feels like. Um, (laughs) There's also a lot of historical interesting tidbits, like obviously the plague is involved and there's a character who shows up, you know, in the plague mass to attend to Hamnet and he's like giving something to to Agnes to give to the boy. And she's like, is it a dried toad? Because if it's a dried toad, I don't want it. And I just love that. (laughs) Like the dissidence between the earthy mother and the plague doctor who thinks he knows everything. I thought that was really interesting. Um, And just like the details that I assume that Maggie O'Farrell makes up, like for example, Agnes can predict the future. Instead of reading palms, if she touches the skin between your thumb and forefinger, she can get a sense of your future. And that's such a specific detail. I have no idea where she came up with that, but it 100% showed the character for me. And then there was also a really cool um, segment of the book that tracks the pestilence and how it gets to Hamnet. That's like, if these things hadn't happened, then it never would have gotten to him. So in some ways, the whole book, like the plot feels inevitable, but at the same time, there's still tension to it and like um, emotion. Um, Also, I both read the book and the audiobook. The audio narration is excellent. I would definitely recommend that um, if you are into audiobooks. My only orc. I have one orc. Uh-oh. It's hard to say. It's kind of like Andrew. I just wanted the book to be a little bit different just for me, which is that I wanted a little bit more of the actual play of Hamlet, which is kind of huh. just just at the end. And I wanted a little bit more of Shakespeare in the Globe, but that's not what the book is. And I have to acknowledge and accept that. But I just wanted a little bit more of the connections. Like they don't go too into detail of like every scene of Hamlet and how it might be like his son. And I wanted a little bit more of that. So you're saying if there's any improvements, the play would be the thing. The play is the thing wherein we catch the conscience (laughs) of the king. Um, But yeah, so I I just kept thinking, is this four stars? Is this five stars? Is this four stars or is this five stars? Ultimately, I'm going to go with four just because it took a little bit for me to get into it. And it just doesn't feel like, you know, perfect all time book. But maybe in five years, I'll think it's a five star book. (laughs) Nice. I mean, to read or not to read, that is the question. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Toby, you've read this one, right? Yeah. um, I would have to say I agree wholeheartedly uh, with your entire review. Actually, except for the end part. I think the the ending with the play was quite well done and I didn't want more of it. Um, But but the other, I think all of your elves, uh, I really agree with. I think having read it over a year ago now, uh, Agnes really is the standout thing that kind of everything else more or less fades away. And as you were saying things, I recognize them. But Agnes as a character is still really fresh in my mind and is like a kind of an all time amazing character. So, yeah, I think I give it four stars, too. Andrew can look it up and blow me up if he wants to. I don't know if I gave it three or something. Toby, you gave it one mango and i don't know what that means (laughs) that's actually six stars i love mangoes no toby i did look it up and you gave it four stars (laughs) (laughs) i was trying to decide between four or five and i'm like okay toby gave it four i can give it four too (laughs) really i had an influence on it wow i feel flattered yeah um but do you have any more facts on on this maggie o'farrell i do so maggie o'farrell was born on the 27th of may 1972 and she's from northern ireland hmm um, she's been a novelist for quite a long time now, and she got acclaim with her very first novel called After You'd Gone. It won the Betty Trask Award. She also won another award, the Costa Novel Award, for The Hand That First Held Mine in 2010. Hamnet won the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2020 and the Fiction Prize at National Book Critics Circle Awards. She's been publishing for a long time. Uh, this is her probably biggest success so far, but she has been hitting them out of the park for many years now. Um, So she was born in Coleraine in County Londonbury, Northern Ireland, and grew up in Wales and Scotland. And here we go. Here's our tie with Emil Ferris. At the age of eight, she was hospitalized with encephalitis and missed over a year of school. 
It very nearly killed her. Um, She also suffered from a pronounced stammer during her childhood and adolescence. Uh, She stated that well into the 1990s, being Irish in Britain could be fraught. She says, we used to get endless Irish jokes, even from teachers. If I had to spell my name at school, teachers would say things like, Oh, are your family in the IRA? Teachers would say this to a 12-year-old kid in front of the whole class. They thought it was hilarious to say, ha ha, your dad's a terrorist. It wasn't funny at all. I wish I could say that it's less common today because people are less racist, but I think it's just that there are new immigrants who are getting it now. Teachers, teachers, that's not funny. That's not the way to make the cool kid like you. Also, who cares if the cool kids like you? They smell. (laughs) They're going through puberty and they smell bad. (laughs) Uh, She has worked as a journalist in Hong Kong and as a deputy literary editor of The Independent on Sunday in London. She has taught creative writing at the University of Warwick in Coventry and at Goldsmiths College in London. She's lived in Ireland, Wales, Scotland, Hong Kong and Italy. And she now resides in Edinburgh. You mean you can introduce yourself as Maggie O'Farrell, the independent? <laughs> yeah, Toby doesn't get that because Toby hasn't seen Ted Lasso. I'm just saying, uh-huh, because I'm just going along with it. <laughs> so uh, so this is the rest of this is from an interview uh, she did with The Guardian. So she talks about the beginnings of this book, uh, that she kind of conceptualized it all the way back when she was at Cambridge University studying English. She says, at that time, studying English was frustrating because it was all about post-Marxist readings. You were several removes from the texts. Um, but she read some biographies of Shakespeare and she learned of Hamnet's existence. This is a quote from her. Whenever they talked about his death, it would be followed by several paragraphs about infant mortality in the late 16th century. The authors would explain that infant mortality was commonplace and imply that parents barely reacted when their children died. I found this an extraordinary assumption. Hamnet was 11 years old. Yeah, and clearly his father was affected because he wrote the play Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Another thing that she kind of bumped up against in her research is... Uh, as Bailey has mentioned, Shakespeare's wife, Anne Hathaway, also known as Agnes. Agnes is very commonly dismissed by biographers. Uh, she says, quote, from scholarly text to popular culture, we're told Shakespeare's wife was an older woman, a peasant. We're told he did not want to be with her, that she trapped him into marriage. We're drip fed this image. I started to feel anger about how domestic life is diminished. People want to believe Shakespeare appeared in London fully formed, that he did not have a domestic life. That's true. I was thinking that as I was reading it. I sympathize Mm -hmm. so much with Agnes and it is a love story in a certain way. And like, this is not something I'd read about them before. I just thought of him as sort of a philanderer. Yeah. Um, So uh, the interviewer mentions that this is a novel about mortality. And it is not surprising that she has written about mortality. She has a memoir called I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. And here are a few of them. She has jumped off a harbor wall uh, 15 meters into a black water and lived to tell the tale. She was held up by a machete-wielding man in Chile. She gave the slipped to a man who later murdered a young woman. And uh, because she feels kind of close to death, she writes, what is given may be taken away at any time. She feels closest to herself when on the brink, when thinking about what it is for a life to hang in the balance. She's also married uh, to a fellow writer named William Sutcliffe. She says, Will and I have known each other for a long time. We met in the first year of university, but weren't together for another 10 years. I trust his judgment and know he will tell me what he thinks. When he read the first draft of The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox, 2006, he said, you need to rewrite half of it. And I did feel annoyed. We had a slightly frosty dinner. (laughs) But the next day I thought he's right. (laughs) That's a good attitude, I guess. And so here's a a last little tidbit about um, the future. The interviewer says about her own future, she volunteers nothing. Instead, she tells a story. One day when she was writing Hamnet, her daughter looked over her shoulder and started to read. After a while, she remarked to her mother, I don't like this story. It's too sad. Please write a happy story next. (laughs) And now, as Hamnet finds its audience, O'Farrell is settling down to a children's book to be published at the end of the year. And it's going to be happy. I'm doing it for her. So there. (laughs) Well, thank you for those facts. That is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Four stars, reluctantly. Hmm. Um, Andrew, do you have any games about like hams or nets? (laughs) Okay. Yes, I have a game. The game is called Hot Dugs and Hinky Punks. What? So I don't know if this restaurant still exists, but there was for a time a restaurant in Chicago that I think also like went into Wrigley Field or maybe Kaminsky Park um, called Hot Dogs. There's a hot dog joint. And a hinky punk is a kind of British folklore monster. I feel like this is a good combination of my favorite thing is Monsters, which takes place in Chicago and features monsters, and Hamnet, which features a major part of British history. And hot dogs. 
And I, I assume there's lots of hot dogs in the in the book Hamnet. Mm-hmm. So the way the game is going to work is I'm going to say the name of something, which will either be a creature from British folklore or a restaurant in Chicago. You'll buzz it in by saying hot dog. If you get it correct, you can also add a detail, um, which is either the sort of type of food that's featured at this restaurant or a description of the monster or creature. If you get that right, you get an extra point. So, for example, if I said the hot dog box and you buzzed in and- Hot dog. (laughs) And said hot dog and correctly identified that as a Chicago restaurant and said it was a hot dog restaurant, you would get two points. If you just knew it was a Chicago restaurant, you'd get one. If you got it wrong, you would get no points and may God have mercy on your soul. Are you ready? You feeling good? Yes, hot diggity dog. All right, brownie. Hot dog. Toby. That's That's a creature, I know. That is correct. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? Oh, I wish I could. I'm going to say he's a woodland creature that steals your eyeballs when you're asleep. Terrifying and incorrect. Specifically, this is kind of a helpful one. It's a household spirit that uh, can do your chores for you. I mean, I'm sure there's a version where they steal eyeballs, but that's how it was described. So you get one point, though, and you're still beating Bailey. Where do I Yay. get one of those? I want a brownie. I love when Toby answered that. He sounded like, that's a monster. I know him. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I know him. He's cool. He's cool. He helps me around the house. Fat lips. Hot dog. Hot dog. Bailey was there first. It's a Chicago restaurant. And that is incorrect. I'm so sorry. <gasps> I, if it makes you feel better, Bailey, I would have said that too. <laughs> uh, Fat lips is a spirit that dwelled in an abbey uh, and similar to the brownie seemed to like tidy up after this uh, hermit who was living there. And that's where that uh, story came from. <laughs> so apparently a lot of British monsters tidy up after you or steal your eyeballs. It's just their wives cleaning up while they're asleep. Oh, this has got to be some sort of fake <laughs> creature. I could have sworn Fat Lip came from Canada. No, we're not doing another Sum 41 run. <laughs> yes, yes. Come on. Give into it. We're in too deep. Ken Key. Hot dog. Belly. Hmm. Restaurant? That's correct. Can you guess what kind of restaurant that might be? I think it's like, um, you know, the Japanese restaurant where they cook in front of you. Yes. Is that what it is? It's not. Uh, it is a Chinese restaurant, and I specifically pronounced it uh-huh. in a way to make it sound more like a British mm. thing. But you do get one point, and you're tied with Toby. <laughs> uh-huh. So congratulations. Okay. Nice. Irazu. Uh, hot dog. Mm, Toby. Restaurant. Correct. What kind of food do you think they make at Irazu? Uh, Irazu, I'm going to say Japanese food? No, it's Costa Rican, butthead. <laughs> no. That is a uh, 10 Things I Hate About You reference. I apologize. Uh, no, it's a Costa Rican restaurant in Chicago. I should say I pulled these uh, names of the Chicago restaurants from a timeout list of the 51 best restaurants in Chicago. Nice. The King of the Cats. Hot dog. Bailey. I think it's a creature. That's correct. <laughs> I think it's McCavity, McCavity. There's no cat like McCavity. It's a jellical cat. All right. Um, had you just said it was the king of the cats, you would have gotten an extra point. <laughs> but you sang McCavity. <laughs> <laughs> um, so no, it's a, it's not that. But you are correct that it was a monster. All right. Got a couple more here. Bar Gast. Uh, hot dog. Mm, Toby. Um, I'm going to say restaurant. That is incorrect. Ugh. A bargast is is um, either a monstrous black dog or a ghost slash elf. Uh, there's a couple different versions of it, um, depending on the region you are in, in Britain. I've, I've, I've read this one. It turns out to be Sirius Black. So your information is incorrect. Ah, yes. The Grim. All right. We have three more. Gallet. Hot dog. Toby. Um, monster. No, it's a Mediterranean <laughs> restaurant in Chicago that I think just got its first Michelin star. Congratulations. Oh. Two more. Again, we're still tied, but we will go to the tie break if we need to. Black Anise. Hot dog. Bailey. That's a restaurant. It's not, though. It's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a hag slash witch that liked human flesh. Don't call me a hag. <laughs> I'm not a hag in my life. Oh, boy. All right, guys. It's tied two to two. Bayan Co. Hot dog. Toby. Restaurant. Correct. And what kind of food does it make? I'm going to say like like South American food, like Banya. I'm thinking South American food. You're, you're in the right direction. It's it's a Cuban restaurant. Ah, okay. But Toby, that does mean you're the winner. Yes. What would you have said if I said giant? Because it's both. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So I was going to trick you with the tiebreaker, but Toby, congratulations. You're our chief restaurateur slash cryptologist. Excellent. I'll take that title. 
And I'm the hag. And I'm Peggy. <laughs> Good game, Andrew. Thank you. It makes me want to get back to Chicago and sample the restaurants. Yeah, it's making me hungry, honestly. Um, my favorite thing is Dylan. It's time for Dylan to choose books at random from our shelf to read next. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. Well, the thing is, I can give Andrew the choice of what his choosing is, but he might refuse it. But that'll just make the drama even better. Uh-oh. When he reads, number 32, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. Oh, but <laughs> that was a hero's journey joke. Yep, I Andrew, get it you now. specifically said that you did not want to lose like the college textbooks. I know I did, and the thing that so... gets me here is I didn't even buy this. This is Jillian's book that I put on my list. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's not. It's not short, is it? It's quite no. long, I think. Right. Hmm. So, do I use one of my banked vetoes from way back? <laughs> Because I don't want to read this. We still have those? I forgot about I, that. I mean, we each have like four. I think only one, like one or two of us have used them. But no, no. The spirit of the to read list is you read what's drawn. So I will do it. Wow. Pejos, that was literally the refusal of the call. And then whatever comes after it, whatever, whatever comes after that. I'm accepting the call. I'm refusing the way out. I don't know if that's a, a step. Which of us is uh, the mentor that's, that has to die? That's what I want to know. Ooh. Well, see, now I feel really bad because Andrew seems pretty upset. I guess I'll, number 47, I'll show myself out. Essays on Midlife and Motherhood by Jesse Klein for Bailey. It's so easy compared to Andrew's <laughs> I think most things will be easy compared to Andrew's poll. Jesse Klein is the Joseph Campbell of our day. I think I bought this for myself for my birthday or Christmas. I don't know, but I love Jesse Klein. I love You'll Go Out of It. I like her on Big Mouth. I'm excited to hear what she thinks about motherhood because I'm right there with her. So I'm going to enjoy my book. Here's the thing. Andrew's going to suffer through his book. And then he's going to realize that he's been reading it wrong and learn a lesson. And then he'll mm -hmm. overcome it. He'll, he'll grow stronger in the end. Yeah. My wife does have a tattoo of the hero's journey on her person. So I suppose I should support her by reading this book. <laughs> oh, okay. So that means in two weeks on the podcast, I'll be reading I'll Show Myself Out by Jesse Klein. And Toby will be reading The Member of the Wedding by Carson McCullers. Yeehaw. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And whether you are or are not a tiny cute werewolf, if your favorite thing is this podcast, let us know. Rate us five stars. Go on to your podcatcher of choice. Press that five star button. Write us a review. It really helps us. I mean, you listen to podcasts. You know what it helps. Do it. Please don't wait 15 years to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and another way to help us out, which is one of our best ways of finding new listeners, is by telling a friend. So you can tell uh, your brother, your sister, your company of players that are doing an audience for the new King of England. Uh, <laughs> just tell them. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> But thank you. Word of mouth is our best way to find new listeners. So if you have a book-loving friend, please tell them about our podcast. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books. books.